गुरबे गौरचंद्रा राधिकाय तदालय कृष्णा कृष्ण भक्ताय तादक्ताय नमो नम प्रणाम टू ऑल ऑफ यू गुड मॉर्निंग एंड वेलकम टू अवर सीरीज एंड श्री राधिकल पर्सनलिज्म श्रीमती राधिकल पर्सनलिज्म एंड टुडे वी आर इन आवर लास्ट मीटिंग सो टू से नेवर एंडिंग एवर अवोल्विंग ongoing project for sure to integrate all that we have been sharing during the last six months but somehow officially the last meeting <clears throat> meeting 25 uh, and today also we are celebrating our bab mahotsav sri vrindavan das thakur ki jai so very auspicious uh, celebration in connection to he who revealed the, one of the main biographies of mahaprabhu and mahaprabhu in such a personality which is so intimately connected to our idea of radical personalism so we are here celebrating all that so anyhow we have reached this point today where we are in lecture 25 we will be talking today about a new way to participate in lila here and now and through that we will be concluding our series on radical personalism as usual let's first make a brief recap of what we shared last tuesday we spoke about our godia heaven is here on earth and uh, all this in connection to what we saw two weeks ago the last three classes of this series have been somehow intertwined interconnected to the idea of properly venerate matter not reject the <clears throat> maya shakti or the material world but actually developing a proper approach to it and see the sacredness even of the material world so much to the point that our godia heaven is here on earth that's the point on the spiritual world we we talked let's just say it's not a, a geographical place as we tend to think about geography but actually mostly a state of consciousness where mm-hmm. geography made of consciousness if you want to put it like that and whenever we reach that consciousness that corresponds with what we call the spiritual world we could say we have attained we have reached that place mahaprabhu showed that in jarakanda he was in jarakanda so called ordinary place not a dam not a tirtha but he experienced fully vrindavan there showing that if you have that vrindavan consciousness so to say even if it's an ordinary jungle you are there you have reached the spiritual worlds in terms of reaching spiritual consciousness and our goal is of course is not mukti nor moksha is prem prem prayojan and prem doesn't care for liberation so to say and our goal is not leaving this world as some form of evacuation plan and reaching somewhere else but our goal is prem prem lila so to say and this prem lila happens on earth eternally as we mentioned not only we have the golok dimension were both krishna lila and gorila going on eternally but those two lilas come to earth and when that lila ends in one particular planet earth in one universe it starts in another one perpetually mm-hmm. so we have eternal lila going on on earth and we are invited to participate in that eternally mm-hmm. and of course also we analyze how so much how sometimes sorry we go just make create too much of an emphasis on reaching the lila over there so to say 
uh, and creating therefore a dualistic split. The Leland transcendence is far away in the future, but we here are somewhere else in the present. But actually we have to begin here and there, here and now, sorry, to enter the Leela, as we will be talking today as well. You have to gradually enter the Leela, prepare for that, train for it. It's not that you are somewhere else and suddenly you find yourself in the Leela, but you, we have to reach that plane in terms of consciousness. We also talked about Shristi Leela and Nitya Leela meeting on earth. Shristi Leela being the material creation, Nitya Leela being the eternal divine exploits of Bhagavan and his associates, how that eternal play overflows, as we mentioned, Lokabhattu Leela Kaivalyam, and then Shristi Leela comes as a result of that, and then Bhagavan comes on earth perpetually to celebrate that. So Shristi Leela being the overflowing, as we mentioned, of the Nitya Leela extending its love right here, and taking the form of another Leela on earth, we call it Bhoma Leela. Also, we spoke in this same terms with, an, an, with another term, the term avatar, divine descent, and Bhagavan coming again, repeatedly, perpetually on earth, and thus bridging the distance between heaven and earth, and showing us you can find heaven and earth simultaneously. When you heaven is coming to earth, and you when you go to heaven, our Godia heaven, not Swargalok, you find an earth-like place there, Naralila. Mm -hmm. And all this principle of avatar is especially the extension, the generous extension, the bridging the gap is especially may manifest in the form of Gaur Hari, Gaur Avatar, getting closer and closer to us. We also share a few, a few words about how the infinite word of Lila is everywhere, by this referring mostly to Srila Siddhar Maharaj's subjective evolution of consciousness, where he's we share many quotes from him mentioning that if we have just the proper angle of vision, the proper consciousness, we will perceive Lila right here, right now, everywhere. Having the proper conception, we will read Krishna Lila, core Lila, everywhere. And then we concluded by talking about concrete to universal, this principle from concrete to universal. A concrete atom from this world, if properly approached, can be a portal that takes us to the universal wave, to transcendence. Mm -hmm. any atom, any single spot of this world, is you ultimately pointing to Radha Krishna's love, Radha Krishna's Leela, your Abhisar, the love story. It all begins with that background of the love story. Again, look about to Leela Kaibalim. We conclude mentioning this. No? Some people will think the universe is against us. Some other people will consider the universe is indifferent to us. And some other people, we go this, will think the, the universe is for us, supporting us. Mm -hmm. Not only is not bad, but also it's so favorable, so in favor of us, so supporting us, that Krishna himself is coming here repeatedly, eternally, to perform his earthly lila. And he's inviting us to join him eternally, not only in Golok Vrindavan, but as well in its earthly manifestation, Gokul, Gokul Braj, Gokul Navadvip. So, of course, the question then will be how... If that invitation to Lila is our eternal prospect, <clears throat> how we as sadakas, wherever we may be at present, how we begin participating in Lila now, whatever we may be. So that's the topic we will touch upon today. And that will be the topic in today's class, which is the last one of our Radical Personalism series, hopefully making some nice uh, full circle, encompassing some of the topics we have been sharing the last almost six months. So that was a brief recap of what we saw last Tuesday. 
let's do a brief introduction, addressing a few words on today's title and then unpacking a few other sections. So again, today's title is A New Way to Participate in Lila, Here and Now. And by new, of course, we refer to the idea of it's not something we are creating, but just sometimes we get accustomed to conceive of these things in a certain way, which eventually may prove to be old or to be non-relatable. So by new means new, may be new for us in how we use to conceive certain things. So these last three concluding class, the last two and this one, somehow they have been kind of a, trying to make a full circle and integration of all the other topics we have been talking about, vulnerability, individuation, divine ignorance, prayer, and so on. But also, I mean, in this class we have shared, and this is just a very, very brief touch upon that, matter is also sacred. We don't need to discard this world, but actually we need to venerate it to learn how to do so, since it happens as a byproduct of God's own joy. And again, in fact, this world is to be embraced as a portal to enter Lila. As Lassimara mentioned, the world of Lila is everywhere. This world can act as a portal to it. And again, Lila is coming perpetually on earth. So that shows how Lila is not as far as we may think of. So that said, again, participation in Lila, of course, it's not something cheap. With this, we don't want to downgrade, downplay the, the requirement for entering, fully accessing that. But we as Sadakas may wonder, okay, where to start again? Because... We begin, to per we begin to participate in Lila here and now. Again, it's not at some suddenly at some point that I have no connection whatsoever with Lila as a sadhaka, nothing, nothing, and suddenly I find myself fully participating in Lila. It doesn't work like that. So how to start participating in Lila correspondingly according to the stage I'm in? So today we will share some thoughts about that, about how we can make the ultimate reality of Lila into something more relatable to us in our present stage, in whatever stage we may be at present. Each one of us will be in, in a different one. Nobody's in the exact same place in their journey, but somehow we can relate to that as sadhakas in a way that we can relate to that. So we will speak about that, and from that, how we can progress again to our ultimate attain of, attainment of lila, final participation, which again, is a state of consciousness. So it all begins with the state of consciousness here. So let's go to a first official section where we will be talking about realism versus idealism. I like to put it like that. I, I will explain what do I mean, of course. Realism versus idealism. So let's be honest, many of us idealize our bhakti practice and our participation in it, or sometimes we over-idealize it. Mm -hmm. to the point of making it unrelatable and irrelevant to our present situation. So we over-idealize what's the goal, what's the price to take, how to reach there. And in such a way, we make it so transcendent, so far away from us that we can no longer relate to us. And we get discouraged and we don't, know, we don't feel that we are participating, being part of that. Mm -hmm. So this same pattern can be applied to the notion of Lila. Mm -hmm. We may overthink it to such a degree that it may feel like a totally foreign reality for us. Again, very far away, impossible to bridge 
from our present situation. So we create, again, this dichotomy, world of Leland transcendence over there, me over here. So this is a form of, again, idealism, or we could call it over-idealism. So instead of that, what we propose is realism, to be realistic, to try to approach the reality of Lila and the description of Lila that is present in the sacred text, to approach it in a realistic way, in a way that becomes more and more relatable and participatory in our present stage. Mm -hmm. That's realistic instead of over-idealistic. Mm -hmm. In other words, as a Sita, as a fully perfected being, that person will participate in Lila from a certain place, of course. Mm -hmm. We sadhakas, mm -hmm. practitioners, we can start to be part of that in some way from another corresponding place. The Sita will participate in its full place from a corresponding place according to his her Atikar. But a sadhaka can start to be part of that, to feel part of that from their corresponding place. And that place, again, is to be found in the here and now, not just practicing mechanically and hoping that someday I'll find myself suddenly into another planet or something like that. As we already explained in the previous class, this world is somehow a foreshadowing or a trailer, so to say, of heaven. Mm. We need to pay proper attention to that. So therefore, if heaven is coming to us, as it is, as we explained last week, what we need then to know what to do with it. If heaven is coming to me, if the whole world of Lila is descending on earth repeatedly, what to do with that descending? Mm. And from where I am now, again, not waiting, mm for some not procrastinating, okay, someday that will happen or I will find myself. That won't happen if we are not doing what we have to do now. So in other words, we are trying to, again, go beyond sometimes the concept of the Lila to the very experience of it. Mm -hmm. One thing is the concept of Lila, how we idealize it again. Another thing is the experience of that. What's the corresponding experience of that in whatever stage we are? As we need a conceptual framework to properly conceive what Lila is, that's very important for sure, we similarly require an experiential framework. You follow my point? It's not just about conceiving things. That's crucial. Again, I, I have emphasized a lot conceiving the concept, but that has to take you to an experience. So you have Sambanda, Abhideya, the practice, I will take you to a certain experience. So, for example, in relation to Krishna, hopefully this helps this example. We're going to speak about Krishna <clears throat> in two ways in this connection. We're going to speak about him in many ways, but in two ways in this connection. We're going to speak about the concept Krishna and an experience of the person Krishna. That's not exactly the same. We may have an idea of Krishna, thoughts about who he is, ideas in our head, so to say, and it's okay, it receives certain education, conception, being touched with revelation. But then comes the personal experience of that other person called Krishna in a relationship. And again, I'm not downplaying any of them. One is crucial to allow the other, but they are not exactly the same either. We may get overstuck with the concept and not go, go to the person. And we want to meet the person behind the concept. You have the concept Krishna, but you want to meet the person Krishna who is behind the concept Krishna. That's the very <clears throat> the very purpose of the concept. 
to take you to the experience, to the person, radical personalism. Mm -hmm. So we should be careful not to mistake the concept with the person. Again, idealism versus realism. The concept will be the idea and the experience of the person may be realism, the real experience in that relationship. Mm. But again, sometimes devotees may think in terms of we have the practice here and the concept there. You know, like God is a concept in the sky. He's there in the sky and I'm here practicing. So therefore, we I think we need to build further bridges, we call it, of relate, relativ relatability, so to say. We are trying to bridge those gaps so the practice remain, remains fresh and relatable and relevant for all of us. <clears throat> so this same idea that we can apply to God <clears throat> also applies to the topic, the notion of Leela. Again, Leela is not merely a concept, an idea. It is, it can be on some level, but also it's not a concept and it's not a reality out there either, only. But as we have shown, again, Lila is a reality that is coming to us in a very intimate way, knocking on our door, inviting us to be part of that right here, right now. And as we know as Gaudias, we can only become part of that Lila by identifying ourselves with the mood of those who are the eternal member, members of that lila. No? That's our school, Raga Anuga Bhakti, to follow in the footsteps of the particular passionate love, in this case, that the inhabitants of Braj and Nadi have for Mahaprabhu, for Sri Krishna. Mm -hmm. So identifying with the members, but how to identify in a way that is realistic, again, not only over-idealistic, how to identify with the Parishads, the eternal associate of Bhagavan, in such a way that that is making us eventually a member of that Leela. It's, I mean, it has to be done in a certain way that is working. If you realize you feel it's not working, probably it's not working. <laughs> and probably we need to fix and adjust some details. It's important that we remain vigilant in that connection. As I like to say in relation to sadhus, sometimes I say, but getting closer to a sadhu, we may not have... <clears throat> In that proximity, the experience that they are having, immediately at least not, but we may have an experience of being close to their experience. And that in itself is an experience. So we have to begin somewhere. It's not that by getting closer, getting familiar with the life of the Brajabhasis, let's say, we immediately <clears throat> are experiencing what they are experiencing. But we will have an experience of the proximity to their experience which may be the, 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 the ideal beginning point for us, if you will. So the same criteria, again, that by proximity to a sadhu, you get an experience of their experience. The same criteria applies to the ultimate sadhus, so to say, the nitya parikars, eternal associates, and how we draw some experience from a proximity to their experience. So again, remember, it's not only about concept, but experience, the concept has to take us to the experience. If that's not happening, then we should be willing to <clears throat> recalibrate. Mm -hmm. So in some Gaudiya circles, something that I like to mention in this connection, <clears throat> some Gaudiya circles, some sadhakas engage in lila smaran, mm -hmm. or recalling, remembering the lila <clears throat> as a central aspect of their sadhana. And of course, while I'm not here to downplay that practice, mm -hmm. 
especially in the case of advanced devotees that can engage in that in a sustainable, realistic way. I also think it's important to present some other alternatives, if you will, to it, not to replace something, but again, to present nuanced varieties that can be embraced according to each one's necessity. Mm -hmm. Or even better put, I will say, some ways of introducing us to that meditation, again, in a realistic and sustainable way. Not only trying to conceive ourselves as already serving in that lila, as a gopi or as a gopa, to give an example, but also paying attention to what the lila has to tell me in the particular stage I am now, instead of trying to see me doing something in, in a particular stage that I'm not yet now. <clears throat> You follow my point? Mm -hmm. Because I'm not fully participating in the Leela now, let's be honest, I mean, in my case. <laughs> so I can have a prospect and projection, but how much I'm projecting things that won't be actually part of that Leela, that's also a risk, so to say. So again, I have nothing against Leela Smarnam, <laughs> but sometimes devotees, again, over-idealize it or engage in it through over-idealization, through projection, or and, and therefore they may misconstrue what that the ultimate reality is about. And for example, some someone may think, I don't know, isn't it, isn't, isn't it a fact that if we can think constantly about the Leela and speak about it, that that's a sign of spiritual, genuine spiritual progress? I've been asked this question repeatedly. And in reply to that question, <clears throat> I will say, well, it all depends what do we mean by thinking and speaking about the Leela. <clears throat> If we say someone is always thinking and speaking about the lila, but what do you mean by that? Just a mere external act of opening the mouth and pointing the, 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 mind, the mind to recalling certain sequence described in Shastra? I don't think so. I mean, I'm not condemning that. Again, we have to begin somewhere, but that's not necessarily a sign of genuine spiritual absorption because anyone can in one sense repeat, recall. You can train a parrot for that. Even memorize, we can memorize sections of the Bhagav of Bhagavan's Lila. Professional reciters do know how to do that. But I wouldn't say that's necessarily a sign of spiritual absorption and relatability. So again, probably in such case in such cases, we should consider the following in our particular stage. In which way we are thinking about the Lila? When we say let's think about the Lila, we just like knowing a certain sequence and put play and it's like some kind of copy paste from which perspective, from which vantage point are we thinking about the Lila? How much dynamic, uh, how much open we are to different possibilities of unfolding in the realm of Lila? How much we are capable to perceive the essence of Lila in our daily lives? Hmm. Because one thing is to sit and think about that, but how much we are doing that to obey what is coming to us now? How much we are able to connect what is happening in my life to the realm of Lila? How much I am able to start to participate in Lila through the daily occurrences of my life? How much we run into the Lila again as an evasion of what life demands in the here and now as sadhakas? Because remember, as we said in one of our classes, God's, God comes to you disguised as your life. It's another way in which Bhagavan is knocking on your door. So how much we are opening that door and understanding that's a doorway to Leela also. Because all those circumstances need to be properly addressed and that will qualify us so that will all create the proper 
foundation for the ultimate participation in Lila. All this has to be properly linked and connected. <clears throat> so I think all these questions should be seriously considered by any progressive practitioner on a daily basis as an actual part of their sadhana. Sadhana is not just doing things. Please remember that over and over. It's not just, I spent two hours a day chanting japa and remembering the lila. That's my sadhana. It's not about just doing stuff externally. It's about what's going on inside. And that can extend up on the whole day. That's the idea. And to think about the implications of my sadhana, to make these serious questions. Therefore, it's, I don't think it's only about try to fully remember the lila. As we already say, Krishna will say, man mana, always think of me. What's the meaning of that? Just mechanically, just visualizing a certain picture, idea, and that's it? No. That's an ideal, idealism, but here we are speaking about idealism versus realism. So the idea of try to fully remember the lila basically means try to make the lila as relatable as possible according to your particular present situation of your daily life. That's realism. Because Lila, again, is supposed to become your daily life. <laughs> you follow my point? I mean, Lila is supposed to become your daily life. So how much you are able to integrate Lila in your daily life? I'm not saying Lila can become any ordinary thing you are going through, and that's your Lila. I'm not saying that. I'm not downplaying the reality of Lila. I'm saying start to live your life in such a way gradually that you can start to make the, the, the idea of Lila relatable to where you are. That's not to downplay the Lila. Because Lila, as we will see, has so many layers, so many implications, so many levels of reach. And to say this is not actually downplaying the standard, but actually this is way more demanding and absorbing. Try to, again, Lila is supposed to become your daily life. How much you make of your daily life a beginning point of participation in Lila. That's way more challenging. <clears throat> but we have to. So everything remains relatable. Of course, sometimes this proposal may be connected to the idea of imitation. But not in a negative way. Also, we use imitation generally with a derogatory accent, so to say tone, but not necessarily that's the case. Anuga, when I say raga anuga, anuga sometimes can be translated as imitation or following. To follow in the spirit of, in this case, the raga of the parikars, raga anuga of the nitya parikars. So raga anuga, in that sense, I mean imitation in this case, to imitate them. Like we hear sometimes in, in Christianity, they have the imitation of Christ. Now, again, it's not imitation in a vulgar, cheap way, but actually try to embody the spirit of the inner experience of that person. So similarly, we have in that sense the imitation of the Brajavasis in our tradition, of the Ragatmikas. Mm -hmm. And of course, again, by imitation here, I do not mean some cheap or uncommitted or sentimental way of copy-paste of the Haiga thing. We are not promoting that. And there are many varieties of Sahajism. I, I already talked about that many times. But I'm talking about imitating their way of being in the sense of starting to incorporate their life dynamics into our life dynamics. That will take time. Okay, no problem, no rush. Hmm. But gradually, what's their life dynamics of the Ragatmikas? How to gradually relate to them, incorporate them, allow those rays to enter mine, my heart, and so on. Hmm. 
of course, especially Gorlila shows this. We have the Nitya Parikars of Raj appearing, those Siddhas appearing as Sadakas, and therefore making the whole thing even more relatable to us as Sadakas. So how we can start relating to them with their spirit of surrender, with their passionate pursuit of truth in our life as it is now. That's a challenge. So my point is, let's <clears throat> just to conclude this first section, let's don't expect, let's not expect some magical change again at some point. And only then I'll become a Brajabasi. I always continue as usual, as usual, without making any inner effort to make this more relatable. But suddenly I will be transported into the spiritual realm. The real question is how to start to become a Brajabasi, how to start to become an eternal associate of Bhagavan. It's not just when that will happen. That will happen whenever you start to do so here and now. How to start to become a Brajabasi? Where to start? Which means, where am I in my present stage? That's where I have to start to become a Brajabasi, of course. That's the reply to the question. And when to start to become a Brajabasi? Now, to start, again, not to become, to, to imitate in a cheap, negative way. But to properly imbibe. You will never we will never reach Golok Vrindavan and Golok Navadvip unless we unless we reach Golok here, at least on some level, as a state of consciousness, as we already talked last week. When you reach such state internally, you will find yourself organically, naturally, realistically, not ideal over idealistically, you will find yourself in another place altogether in terms of consciousness. It's not about being somewhere again here and suddenly being thrown somewhere else. It doesn't work like that without, without us really wanting to go there. And Krishna is not that cruel <laughs> that he will send you where you don't choose to go yourself. So we have that commitment, that responsibility. We have to choose. And choosing means every day. It's not choosing once when I accepted my guru or something. Every single day, every single moment, I'm choosing my ideal which is my ideal, how much I want to actually pursue that. Mm. Mm. So if you really want that, especially if that is Golok, you'll be there. And you'll start to be there, to be inhabiting there right now. Gradually, by, by right now, you can start to do so. Mm. So anyhow, so if I extended myself a little bit, probably today's, today's lecture is the last one. So bear with me, maybe a little longer than usual. Let's go to another section connected to all this, which is called Understanding Scripture Through the Allegorical Eye. Eye. Relate to sight. So how to understand scripture with that particular eye called the allegorical eye. All this in connection to what we are talking here. How to make the reality of Lila relatable and to start to participate in it wherever we may be in a realistic way. So, of course, because we are speaking about Lila, but the reality of Lila is presented in Shastra. It's revealed in Shastra. It's not something we can just come up on with our own mental invention or capacities. It doesn't work like that. It's revelation. So the reality of Lila is presented in Shastra. So our capacity to connect and even participate in Lila will depend a lot on how we approach those descriptions in Shastra. You follow. It's not just, again, something completely independent that we create our own ways. 
very much connect to what Shastra is revealing. So how we are relating to those descriptions. And remember, we already talked about this many times. Shastra, sacred scripture, is a reality that is talking to us. It's not an old dusty book in a shelf. It's an ongoing flow of revelation. And it's talking to us and it's extending to us from above. But also we have to extend ourselves to Shastra, if you will. We have to stretch to make our own work to properly be present to what Shastra was, wants to tell us. And there are different ways of doing so, different ways of approaching Shastra, of reading, so to say, understanding the contents of sacred revelation. In general, this, there are two ways that we can summarize and, and describe this approach. And I've referred to this before. We can talk about a literal approach to Shastra, an allegorical approach to Shastra, and an esoteric approach to Shastra. So I'll, 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 I'll unpack these notions next. So in connection with the descriptions of the Lila that we are referring to here, this will mean what? Literal approach means understanding the Lila literally. Like you read that and it's like a story, but you are not drawing particular teachings. You are not actually participating in Lila as a member of it, just you're taking it literally. Then allegorically means that you are draw, drawing not only teachings that are applicable to your particular stage, but also you're finding that the Lila not only speaks hmm, to those who fully participate in it, but to everyone according to their stage. In the same way that Krishna says something and that has a multiplicity of meanings, the reality of Lila has a particular meaning to those who are members of it, but also has different meanings to everyone else according to their situation. So that means the allegorical, it's a way of using it. Allegorical eye, sometimes called interpretative, interpretive eye, and so on. And then we have the third one, which is the esoteric approach to scripture, which means basically fully full inner participation in Lila as one of its members. So even you read these descriptions and you are not reading, you are not hearing, you are there. You are serving there. So that's the highest way. So these three levels, literal, allegorical, esoteric, somehow could be related, roughly at least, to the stages that we know called Kanishta, Madhyam, or an Uttam Bhagavat. These three levels of participating in the Gaudiya project. And of course, many of us, or most of us, I would say, sadakas are in a situation where they should aspire to Madhyam Bhakti, to the Madhyam level, from Kanishta to Madhyam, at least in general, again. <clears throat> So therefore, that's the situation for most. I will present <clears throat> that corresponding approach to Shastra mostly here. I will emphasize that the allegorical one, the allegorical approach to Shastra as the ideal method mm, to make, again, the Lila more relatable, more participatory in our present stage. Mm. Again, sometimes this allegorical method, as I say, is called or is known as the interpretive method or sometimes the archetypal method. An archetype uh, is not something a real, unreal. It's some. It's an image we could say that constellates, so to say, a whole host of meanings mm, that cannot be communicated logically, but which are somehow grounded in our collective mm, human unconscious, so to say. We already talked about that in the past. You know? So some deep, substantial meaning which is embedded 
in the DNA of reality and which speaks to all of us who are attempting to sincerely look for God and spirituality. So in other words, we can read Lila in a way that speaks about the universal patterns that most of us have to go through in our spiritual journey. Like we will give some examples at the end of today's talk by referring to some of the main Lilas in our tradition. How do they speak about these deep values of faith and surrender and trust and shelter and so on? So therefore, the allegorical eye, don't lose sight of the terms, please. Allegorical eye means, implies, of course, as you may imagine, <clears throat> not taking <clears throat> not taking the lila literally as what it seems to our conditioned view. <clears throat> and also the allegorical eye implies not trying to jump into the ultimate and most esoteric significance of the lila. Because we cannot actually do that either, even if you want to try and, 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 and approach the Shastra esoterically. If you are not there, you won't be able to do so. If you don't have proper grounding, proper realization. So the allegorical eye has mostly to do with trying to extract relevant teachings on the basis of realism of where I am, relevant teachings, <clears throat> values, and principles that are crucial to my present stage in our sadhaka journey. Again, to be to remain sincere about where we are, where we want to be, and what we, what do we need to do about it? Where we are in our sadhaka journey, and where we are in our pursuit of madhyam bhakti, in order to eventually attain the highest domains of divine love. I mean, don't try to jump from being in Kanishta Bhagavat to be an Uttam Bhagavat. <laughs> there are certain places to visit in between. So in relation to these three set of ikes, so to say the literal, the allegorical, and the esoteric, I would say that as a collective, again, I'm not pointing to specific cases, the Gaudiya community, and probably not only the Gaudiya community, but in many cases, any other spiritual community for that matter, generally our current situation, it tends, the community tends toward the literal ike, or sometimes toward the esoteric eye, and many times projecting the literal eye into the esoteric domain, which will give us a result, of course, varieties of sahajism or fundamentalism or sentimentalism. So even with more reason, therefore, the intermediate eye, <laughs> the allegorical one, becomes all more crucial in this case to transition from this literalis <clears throat> literalism <clears throat> to actual, real, esoteric participation, the ultimate goal to attain. <clears throat> and this is so because the allegorical, the intermediate I will take us rather to appreciate, among other things, to appreciate Saranagati, Shraddha, Dhrubhishramba, the surrender, the faith, the confidence, the sacrifice that the Nitya Parikars, the eternal Siddhas, are willing to engage in. That's a very important teaching for us to draw in our particular stage. We're addressing the lila. Now, if we don't learn to appreciate mm, these elements, each of these elements in the lila, mm, we will appreciate the dynamic of lila only with the literal eye, just taking the facts. No? Rajabhasis did that, say that, Krishna did that, this happened, the facts, like the sequence, the timeline of sequence. But we are not drawing the spirit of their inner attitude. So that will be just approaching the Lila literally. 
and that of course will take us probably to confuse the lila, mistaking the lila with something mundane, or experience it in a mundane way. Maybe not saying that we may be saying that's transcendental, but we will be relating to add to that from a literal and mundane place, and we don't want that. Even again, if from a leap level we may say that's glorious, that's transcendental, but we may be experiencing it quite differently. <clears throat> also, to take shelter in this allegorical eye, this intermediate set of eyes and vision, helps us to extract teachings which are especially applicable to our present stage and not necessarily to the stage in which the Vrajabhasis themselves are. Again, this is not about that type of imitation. They, they are learning their particular lessons, if you will, and giving us a particular lessons. So therefore, both the Lila and the Brajabhasis mood and example become much more relatable to us as sadhakas in that case. Not only because of its human-like features, we already talked about that, the fact that the Lila is human-like makes it way more relatable to us, but also because the Lila will become further relevant because we will be able, through the allegorical eye, to extract different values, different principles that perfectly match and apply to our specific present situation. Excuse me if I'm repeating this a few times, but I think it's an important point. And if we are able to do so, if we are able and connect and relate to the Lila from wherever we are, this will be the beginning of feeling that we belong to the Lila, of seeing, feel, experiencing ourselves as members of it on some level, that we are part of it, that we can identify with that prospect. Somehow we, we, we will begin to participate in the Lila, part. I feel a part of it. On some level, again, I'm not promoting any sort of daydreaming or imagination. I'm already there fully or anything. But we will feel I'm starting to participate somehow in it because it becomes relatable to me. And therefore, I can identify with that. What to speak of identify for eternity. Because you cannot participate in the lila if you don't self feel yourself part of it somehow. So you have to ask yourself, how much do I feel myself part of the lila? And therefore, how much I'm participating of that or how much I will be ending participating in that? Because in some cases, we will feel apart from the lila instead of a part of the lila. It's two different things. I'm a part of the lila. I'm apart from the lila. <laughs> Just one space in between, but it makes the whole difference. Mm -hmm. And again, of course, the ultimate level of participation in lila has to do with the third eye, the esoteric eye, but that will manifest eventually accordingly after properly engaging with the allegorical eye, with the intermediate vision that we are sharing, with the type of participation that such eye invites us to have in the here and now. We have to start participating here. In other words, we should learn to behold, so to say, how the lila unfolds in our own daily life to begin with. How what the lila is telling me is applicable to my situation and therefore what's, what I'm going through in my sadhaka journey becomes linked with what the lila is talking to me. We, we start to connect dots by using the actual braja lila and gor lila using in proper way, you know, referring to them and establishing points of linking and connection. And this is the way to move from 
uh, no, reading about love, let's say, to experience love. That's not the same. You, you may need to begin reading about what love is, but eventually you need to experience it to really understand what love is. Mm -hmm. To connect with the highest domain of love is Lila and how to connect that with our daily life. <clears throat> so our daily life as sadhakas, I would say, is in, in need of different types of adjustments of, of many levels that we have been sharing throughout the whole series of radical personalism. And Lila will speak about those, about those adjustments we need to make. Lila is also speaking about that. It's not Lila is not only speaking in, in spiritual and esoteric terms, but also in human and psychological terms. They are addressing our psychology and, and, and whatnot. They are addressing everything. Lila is the most encompassing expression of reality. So everything is properly addressed if we have the eyes to see. So again, approaching Lila through the allegorical eye can nourish, nourish us in all these levels spiritual, human, psychological, and so on. Because remember, revelation is not only ongoing and dynamic, it is, of course, but it's an ending. There is no end to that unfolding. So there is not only one right way to approach Shastra, for example, to approach the revealed scriptures. Don't become stuck in this, in just approaching them in one way. It's always new. It's always moving. So while we should be rooted in tradition, be careful of not being rotten in tradition. We should be rooted in tradition, but tradition is dynamic. If you try to root yourself in tradition without understanding its dynamics, you become rotten in tradition, and that's very unbecoming. So before going to the next section, let me share a few words with something that in this connection is interesting, something that is called multi-trait interdisciplinary methods. Sorry for the complex words. <laughs> but it's an interesting point in connection to what we have shared, just sharing connection to the integration of revelation, humanity, psychology, and so on. Multi-trait interdisciplinary methods of understanding a concept. So what's the meaning of that? This implies that you look at whatever concept from different disciplines. Mm -hmm such as the science of mind, consciousness, history, psychology, sociology, whatever, from different angles. You're approaching one same particular subject of study. So each discipline that comes up with will come will then come up with conclusions that support each other. I mean, that's the idea of this particular method from different angles. So our reading of Shastra, which of course includes descriptions of Lila, I will say it shouldn't be an exception to this. We can apply a form of this method also and get benefited from that. And Shastra, of course, is ultimately understood by the grace of God and his, and his agents. I'm not denying that. I'm not saying just become a sociologist and, and get the essence of Lila. I'm not saying that. That will come by Kripa. But also in another way, we could say, I mean, these different disciplines can shed further light if we are properly connected with God and his agents, for sure. So we can understand Shastra from new perspectives from throughout the disciplines we've mentioned. It can share some of this. Shastra is, again, speaking to all these layers of approaching reality. So we should take advantage of all of the information that is available to us now. 
For example, let me give you an example of this possibility coming from one of our acharyas. Purvacharya, Sila Prabhupada, for example, repeatedly he said, the real value of science is to prove the existence of God. He said that many times. And of course, this doesn't mean stop doing sadhana and become a scientist, and that's how you will reach Golok. That was not his point. But he made this point. The real value of science is to prove the existence of God. In other words, you can reach some confirmation of divinity through these different disciplines. So in a sense, that's what is happening if we use, again, different disciplines to make these concepts of scripture, whatever they may be, relevant for others and for us as well in our particular time and stage we may be in. In other words, these alternative approaches, history, again, sociology, psychology, science, they have the potential to reconfirm our own tradition, to shed light on all of them. Again, if we address them with the proper eye ourselves, for sure. And, and, and that will reconfirm our tradition, not only for our own selves, and not only for everyone else, not as a preaching strategy, but also for our own selves. We may need to experience our own tradition as more relevant through the eye of whatever, psychology or science, why not? It's okay. It's, it's in the service of faith, of our faith. Mm -hmm. now, for example, in, in where we are in an age, I will say, where psychology and science have an authoritative role. Mm -hmm. and, and we are affected by that, like it or not, know it or not. Mm -hmm. So therefore, to go to them and to find our tradition validated, further reveals, further explained, if you will, by those disciplines in our own framework of the tradition, that will make our tradition more relevant to us. You get my point. So I'm not saying everyone has to do that, but there's a possibility of that. And most of us may need that on some level or another. So therefore, I think it would be good for devotees to develop that type of methodology. I'm not saying it's exactly the type of, again, multi-trade interdisciplinary method, but it's a way of doing so, to remain open to how all these other disciplines can shed further light on our own tradition for us and thus make it more relevant. For example, how to deal with the Bhagavatam and Shastra in this way. Again, that will be a radically personalist way for me of dealing with the tradition. Very specific, very nuanced, different angles. And the reality of Lila is not exception to this. So therefore, just to conclude this section, we will next address the reality of Lila with the help of our allegorical eye. This has been kind of an introduction <laughs> To the main po to the point we are trying to establish today. Now we'll go to some examples. We'll we'll ad address some lilas and let's try to draw some different lessons that speak to us in our present stage as sadhakas, uh, and all of which will create the necessary underlying background for us to not only access the ultimate participation in that lila, but also to start to participate in this and every other lila here and now by relating to it through the teaching it embodies and all of which can be applied and will manifest throughout even the most ordinary moments of our daily life, as Thomas Merton very nicely said. That's the exact place where our salvation begins. The most ordinary moment of your daily life, try to find transcendence there. Try to find lila unfolding there. And the fact that the Braja lila seems so ordinary, apparently, is trying also to teach us this most valuable lesson as well. 
don't lose sight of the extraordinariness in the or so-called ordinary. So let's begin there, since we invoke the idea of ordinariness, so-called ordinariness. Let's begin with one of the lilas that mostly most highlight this so-called ordinary feature. And this lila is the Damodar lila. Remember, lila is not something waiting for us somewhere else. It's a state of consciousness that we can't start accessing now. So let's go there. Let's try to do it. Let's try to, again, take what we have shared till now, the importance of the allegorical eye, how to approach Shastra from this particular angle in a realistic way, and draw some teachings that will make their lila relevant for us and give us experience. We can begin to sense a sense of participation in it. So let's continue with Damodar Lila, a story about how limitation can facilitate charm and intimacy. That's one of the main lessons of Damodar Lila. So <clears throat> a brief depiction of this Lila will be the following, as you may already know. Sri Krishna is a child, kissing his Kumar age, and as with any child, he misbehaves. That's part of his dharma, so to say, his sacred duty. And his mother, Yashoda, he's running after him while Krishna's running afraid of her while crying profusely. And after trying to catch him repeatedly, Yashoda finally does so, and she ties him to a mortar. And therefore, I mean, that's, of course, very sutra-like description of the lila. But try to get the points here. We have here God being a son, which is not usual, being nourished instead of nourishing. I mean, he's nourishing as well for sure, but he's being dependent. He's being angry. He's being jealous. He's being naughty. He's being scared, crying, and he's being finally tied. All these things that generally do not match with the idea of most people may have of who God is. Of course, all this is happening in the context of Prem, of the bond of Prem. So this will put everything else in context for us Godis. But that say there are many hidden implications which talk to our present condition as sadakas. Again, this is not just a funny story, a charming uh, tale, just to get entertained for a while. There have many things that we need to relate to where, whenever we are and commit ourselves deeply. For example, in this Lila, as well as, of course, in many others, Sri Krishna, the Absolute, is found crying, again, stealing, lying. <laughs> no, he's a liar in the Lila, and he's been tied. In other words, he doesn't seem like the Absolute at all. But he's Absolute. He remains himself the Absolute. And he's allowing himself to include different types of contradictions. And all of them are being properly harmonized in him in the land of Raj. And so what's the lesson we can draw from this Lila through the allegorical eye will be, okay, as that's happening in the Raj. We should also, as Sadakas, allow contradiction to coexist with us hmm? and integrate the complexity that complexity in one form or another. We already talked about the integration of complexity. Here we have a great example. The absolute, but crying, stealing, being tied. That doesn't see, feel, seem to fit. It seems paradoxical. Remember when we talk about paradox and so on. So that's a big lesson for us if we pay proper attention. Mm -hmm. 
the above contradictions hmm, could be also seen as imperfections in God's character. <clears throat> but again, he remains being sweet and absolute, and all this is increasing the charm of the Leela. In fact, once Srila Siddhartha said that Raja Krishna, he's hiding himself behind a tangle of imperfection. That's his yoga maya filter, so to say, in the Leela. So on the other, so on one side we have the so-called imperfections in Krishna, in God. On the other side, we have the so-called imperfections of Yashoda, her divine ignorance, not knowing Krishna's godhood, Aishwarya, not realizing that the rope continues being two inches too short every time, and instead insisting on bringing more rope. Imperfection, imperfect, 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 so to say. <laughs> but all of that in the context of increasing divine love. So that's, there's another lesson for us to learn there as sadhakas, no? And the lesson is how to deal with such so-called imperfection in the lila takes us to how to deal with our own imperfection. If you don't allow any form of imperfection in the lila, probably that's a way that takes you to not allow any form of imperfection in your particular lila. We have Krishna's Nara lila, we have our own Nara lila, so to say, not strictly Nara lila, but to call it in some way. So be careful of not rejecting all forms of imperfection and evading working with your own imperfection and integrating in such a way that it becomes charming, as it happens in the lilas, the famous kintsugi art in Japan. Imperfection is highlighted, you know, it's nourishing our story. The teaching behind Krishna being limited and tied in this Damodar Lila also has to do with, again, finding, try to get this fine point has to do with finding freedom in limitation. Again, it may sound contradictory to begin with, but there is the possibility of finding freedom in limitation. Real freedom is not about having no limitations. Rather, it is about finding liberation within and through limitation. I mean, this is this has been shown here. Krishna's tied, but his love is being increased. And love means freedom. So if love is increasing, Freedom is increasing, but he's tied. So he's limited in one sense, but he's unlimited in the sense that he's not limited by that limit because his love is increasing and therefore his freedom. <laughs> we need to learn to think in these paradoxical terms. So I repeat this point again. Real freedom is not about having no limitations. It's about finding Liberation within and through limitation. Dhammada Lila is very graphic about this. This is why the whole of Krishna Lila in Braj is so limited. <laughs> Again, God tied. How, how you can get it much more graphical than that? So see, boundaries seem too limited, but make freedom possible. As we can see, that, that's the loss of the, of the game, the rules of the game. Every game needs rules, needs boundaries. And Lila is another way of saying game. Divine play. So every game and play has rules, has boundaries, has limits, if you will, but in such a way that they facilitate the game, facilitate the play. Mm. So that's the idea here. Mm. That's the lesson we can extract from this section of the Damodar Lila through the allegorical eye. Boundaries are the parameter or the perimeter of freedom. Mm. They are not against each other. Therefore, we can pray to Bhagavan, oh, I thank you for becoming finite, unlimited, and limited. <laughs> so I do not have to pretend that I'm infinite and limitless. 
something like that also. That's another way of putting it. So in conclusion, before going to another Lila and continuing giving examples of how we can make this ultimate realm of Lila relatable to our present situation, in conclusion, we could say in this connection that we must allow ourselves a certain amount of imperfection in our present stage as sadhakas in order to normalize failure, not to stigmatize. We have to accept some failure in order to transcend it. Again, we must normalize failure, not traumatize failure. Sometimes we traumatize ourselves of others by, by, by demanding a certain degree of perfection, which is not something actually necessary, as we can see the Dhammarat Lil is teaching us this principle. Not that type of perfection. If you are not allowing yourself to be imperfect in any way, here, where we are now, probably we will project again that tendency into transcendence. We will think transcendence has to be perfect in every sense of the word. And you will see Braj then, and you will see there's so much imperfection in Vrindavan, and you will that will be overwhelming. And probably you will be run away from that, that you will try to go to some other place, maybe some more more perfect, in this case, place like, like by, on the Vaikuntha side of the equation. And in that case, you will be sabotaging your own potential for the Brajalila. And that's not the idea, of course. <laughs> Let's see, mentioned that perfection is not a demand, demand of the heart. Perfection is a demand of the ego. When there is love, when there is heart, there's no demand for perfection. Love demands love. That's Brajalila. Love demands love, imperfection included. So anyhow, some thoughts regarding Damodar Lila and how can we apply this allegorical eye and draw these different lessons in our Sadaka journey. If you would like to see more details on this, I'm basing this section and the next ones on a series of lectures I gave last year for some of them for Kartik, some of them some years ago. In this case, there's one series you can find in my YouTube channel called Divine Imperfect. And there we, in four classes, we delved deeply into one Kartik some years ago about all these lessons from the Damodar Lila. Let's go to another Lila, another very well-known Lila for us Godias, which is the Govardhan Lila. And in, in this case, through the allegorical eye, we will try to embrace the Govardhan Lila as a story of obstacles, surrender, and ultimate shelter. All, all very deeply connected to what we need to relate to as sadhakas. So this Govardhan Lila, as you may know, begins with the Brajabhasis blindly following, if you will, following blindly by worshipping Indra. Of course, their blindness doesn't come from a conditioned, ordinary thing, but come from Gyansunya Bhakti, from the participation in Lila. But at least on some level, it can be seen as such. They are worshipping Indra without knowing why they are worshipping Indra. Krishna himself asked them, and they say they're just handed down by tradition. We are doing this. So Krishna is canceling that way of worship. So we could say the fact that Krishna is canceling this blind following also can speak about the invitation for a higher mode of worship. The leaving aside of the comfort zone when we just do things because others did the same thing in the past, but I don't know why. A form of what Rupa Goswami calls Niyama Graha, following without understanding without questioning also how much of that should be updated because sometimes we have this nostalgia 
with tradition and they did that, they did that. And we should, of course, venerate our elders and honor past and tradition. But some things we should also look up to, up to. some things may need to be updated, upgraded. And there's lots of this in our Gaudiya community at present, I will say. Sometimes we just do something because it was said to do so or it was done like that through centuries ago. And maybe that's not an absolute consideration. It's more on a, more of a cultural filtering and social situation of the time that needs to be adjusted to our present set case, so to say. So Krishna, we could say that's the lesson we can extract from this section of the Govardhan Lila for us as sadhakas. Watch out for Niyamagraha. So also, this section of the Lila could represent the difference between transactional religion and transformational religion. We already talked about that in one of the previous classes, I think. Transactional religion is like worshiping to obtain things for me. So again, in the context of the Lila, Brajabas are kind of embodying that for a moment. A transactional worshiping the gods or even God to remain in the comfort zone and even increase it. I'm not saying the Brajabas are doing that, but on some level, one could take that aspect and apply that to something we can maybe doing. Transactional. And transformational religion means all that happens or out of the comfort zone, basically. But inside and through the storm, remember, there will be a storm in this lila. So here we have Krishna displacing the Brajavasis, not the Brajavasis, ultimately ourselves through the allegorical eye. We can draw that. That's applicable to us. Like Arjuna in the Gita, he's lamenting like a condition. So it's actually not Arjuna. That's for us. So here Krishna is displacing the Brajabhasis, we could say, or us again, from transactional religion to transformational religion, canceling the worship of Indra and instead worship Govardhan. Creating, canceling Indra Puja and creating the proper environment for them to express the deepest form of Saranagati, as we will see as the Lila unfolds. And the deepest form of Saranagati will happen considerably outside of the comfort zone. So as we know, the Indra Puja is cancelled and then Indra gets totally mad and out of control and he doesn't behave in the way you will expect from the chief of the gods. And he calls from the Sambartaka clouds that are invoked at the, at the end of whole creation period and creates a whole apocalyptic storm, arrives at Braj, as we know he wants to kill them all. And the Brajavasis do not deny the storm and take the storm allegorically, <laughs> they do not deny the storm, but they begin with a foundational yes, as we have been talking about. They do not deny. They do not say no to begin with. They say yes, this is happening. God is coming to be this guys in my life. They're acknowledging reality and proceeding accordingly. They're not denying the storm. They are going through it. And because of that, they eventually they are finding some shelter during this storm. So try to apply all this allegorically to our situation as sadhakas. Do not deny your storms. Learn to go through them and start with the foundational yes. So the Brajabhasis go to Krishna in the storm looking for shelter in full spirit of saranagati, surrender. Although they didn't have a clue about which form of shelter, which form that shelter will take. They're asking Krishna, give me shelter. But you don't know how Krishna will reply to your prayer. And you have to be willing to adjust. In this case, the, literally the shelter took shape. A whole month, month, mountain uprooted to act as an umbrella. That sounds even like 
bizarre, if you will. That's not in your plan, but that was the unexpected form of shelter. So similarly, again, our lessons here through the allegorical eye for us as sadhakas is when we speak of saranagati and try to apply that principle, try to pray for, for, for in surrender, we should be very careful not to over-idealize how saranagati should look like in our life. Krishna, give me shelter. And that shelter should look like this, like this, take this shape. That's not saranagati. To think that, to think saranagati should look like this, is to cancel the very principle of saranagati from the very beginning. You want to remain in control. Instead of opening ourselves again to how Krishna wants to give us shelter, we try to control the shelter by anticipating how Sharanagati will should look like look like. But the Brajabas are not doing that. So they are giving us the example for us to know how to deal with this sacred principle of Saranagati. So they did that. So here we have it. No? First, the Brajabasi were in the worst possible situation, the whole village faith facing imminent death. And suddenly, that worst possible situation turns into the best possible scenario ever conceived. You have what? Not only the shelter of the mountain, but you're, they are having uninterrupted darshan of Krishna for a whole week without blinking, so to say. That never happened before or after that. So the greatest blessing coming from the worst, so to say, curse. But what happened in between these two extremes? Again, the Brajabhasis, the storm came, the worst possible thing, but the Brajabhasis acknowledged the storm, all of the, allegor the allegorical topic. Only after acknowledging first the foundational yes, they took shelter in Bhagavan and trusted his shelter, whatever form it may take, whatever it may demand from them. And then... When that's in place, Krishna provided the new unexpected shelter by basically doing the impossible, lifting Govardhan and sustaining it for a whole week, and thus creating the greatest and most unthinkable joy in the midst of the worst possible storm. So again, that's a big lesson for us as sadhakas. We have to do the same thing, acknowledging whatever storms we have to go through, our dark nights, so to say, take shelter in Bhagavan, being open to how he wants to provide shelter, and be open to that whenever it comes. And the impossible will become possible. So again, before concluding this Govardhan Lila, here we have the parallel of liminal zone. Remember, we spoke about that liminal zone, the dark night of the soul. So the Brajabhasis are totally thrown into the unknown from one moment to the other, into another, with everything becomes totally uncertain what to do, facing imminent death, except for one single thing that remained certain for them always, which was their faith in Krishna and, the, and Krishna's bigger picture and the surrender to that shelter, whatever form the shelter takes, whatever shape we need to adopt to fit into that new shape of the shelter. Because the shelter can take a new form, but you have to take a new form to fit into that shelter. You have to adapt, to change, to transform. We will not recognize God later if we cannot recognize God now, that's the point. It's a matter of seeing God now through the shadow, through the storm, and the disguise. Again, the new shape he has taken in our lives. Krishna is taking new shapes. The relationship is progressing. We need to adjust to that. Mm -hmm. Through the storm, again, but under the proper shelter, we will not only see him, 
I will see him a lot. Like the Brajabhas are showing this in the Govardhan Lila. They had one week of uninterrupted darshan by embracing Krishna through storm and shelter. So if we want to be Brajabhasis, we want to pursue that prospect in the Lila. Again, as sadhakas, we have to develop that type of surrender, of faith, of nishta, of fixity, and trust in the, on all these directions. So some thoughts about uh, how we can read, if you will, the Govardhan Lila through the allegorical eye and therefore make this particular Lila more relatable to where we are and hear the Lila and connect and be part of it in that way. Now, if you want more of that, I some of these points were taken by a lecture I gave in the last Govardhan Lila lecture uh, last year, last Kartik. And also there's one lecture I gave in this connection that I won't be touching up on here, which was a Gopastami class also for Kartik last year. So let's conclude with one more lila, and, and that is the Rasa lila, as you can imagine, the crown jewel of all lilas. And in this case, how to relate to the Rasa lila? We also gave a lecture in the last Kartik about it, so I'm extracting a few points here only. You can go there for more in the YouTube channel. So how to relate to the Rasa lila from an allegorical eye, like seeing it as a story about darkness, risk, and the highest love, of course. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so interestingly, of course, the Rasa Lila is performed during not only night, but midnight, the darkness moment of the day. Again, darkness is coming. But also it's being performed during Purnim, which is full, full moon. So it's the brightest moon of the darkest night, of the darkest moment of the night. So th these two apparently contradictory things are implying the notion of darkness and shining, shining darkness. We already talked about that. Shining darkness can be enlightening. The full moon enlightened actually and guided the gopis. The thickness, in one sense, they, in one sense you have the moon, dark, sorry, dark, bright moon, <coughs> full moon, <coughs> enlightening and guiding the, guiding the gopis. But also you have the thickness of the dense forest in midnight, and they were entering that. So this is, brings us back to the principle of embracing obscurity, uncertainty, and the mystery, while riding behind the clarion call, Krishna's flute call, and the light that will be there if we are willing to do that. Do that. There will always be a full moon shedding light on our path, so to say. So the gopis are running behind Krishna's flute call. Sometimes we call it clarion call. And a clarion call is a very clear message, if you go to its definition, a very clear message or instruction about what action is needed. So you receive that. You receive the clarion call. So in, in this case, that, that's very applicable. The message is very clear. It's very specific. This lila is the zenith of specificity, the zenith of radical personalism, because... In fact, Krishna plays the flute and each group is hearing their own name included in that flute call. That's very personal, radically personal. So the message is very clear. The clarion call is there. And the needed action, which also has to do with what the clarion call is, is that the gopis need to leave everything behind in order to save the life of their object of love. Krishna is dying in separation. His heart is burning in separation of the gopis. So Krishna is sending this emergency message. I'm dying in separation of you. I love you. So that's the needed action. Come to me as urgently as possible. 
So there is not a decision for the gopis when hearing the call. It's not should we go, should we not know. There's no second option. It's a there have there's a total identification with the call. So that's a lesson for us sadhakas. Gradually identify with the call, with Krishna's clarion call, to hear the flute coming to us in, through so many different life dynamics and situations. Another way to read this Rasa Lila symbolically or through the allegorical eyes, also the gopis are in Avisar on a love journey. And this shows, the gopis Avisar show how life itself is a love journey. It's nice to conceive, to think about that. Our life is a love journey. And the gopis are showing this by acknowledging the obstacles in the journey. It's not an easy journey for sure. Love journey is not easy journey. But they are going through all these obstacles with their goal in mind, meeting their ob the object of their affection. <clears throat> also related in relation to this Avisar and the idea of clarion call, the flute call, sometimes the flute call is, is, is described as the ultimate diksha, the ultimate initiation process. Diksha, remember, means initiation and means a process. It's not something that happens only once. And that process culminates in hearing the flute in Lila. But that flute call is in itself an ongoing process. It's not that you will hear the flute, okay, that's it. No, every time you will hear the flute, it will be a new level of that diksha experience. It has no end. The flute keeps sounding with more and more necessity. Krishna is calling the gopis, save me. And every time that necessity increases, that's the dynamics of love. And therefore, the dedication of the gopis increase because they're identified with the in ongoing increasing necessity of Krishna of being saved by them and vice versa. So both of them are nourishing. So here the gopis are receiving a further diksha, so to say, which is an ongoing event into eternity, which is the lesson through the allegorical eye. We should be ongoing and dynamic as well. We should learn to conceive diksha, the diksha we have received and the whole process and the whole prospect <clears throat> as an ongoing, ever-evolving pattern of unfolding, no end. Hmm? And live our lives accordingly. <clears throat> and then the gopis finally arrive to Krishna's feet, hmm? as we know. But what happens then, Krishna, he asks them, surprise. He's surprised, he says, why are you here? You're such a young woman in the middle of the night. I'm just one boy here. And, and he seems to send the gopis back home, apparently. And again, that speaks about how love moves like a snake, very crooked way, not directly, in unexpected ways, in zigzag. You cannot anticipate what will happen next, and you have to be ready for that. So for sure, the gopis in this moment are in liminal space, for sure, inhabiting uncertainty in many ways, but again, still having the most important certainty in place. And that's what allows them to argue with Krishna in that moment, in the Pranaya Gita, and defeat Krishna's arguments, after which the first edition, we could say, of the Rasa Lila begins. Because, it, you know, there are different sections to it. So they start to sing. So as you can see, there are different layers of complexity that are more and more integrated as the narrative of this Lila progresses. So we shall do the same homework as Sadakas. Different layers of integration and accepting uncertainty, embracing... The unknown and adjusting accordingly. And they start to dance, they start to celebrate first edition of the Rasa Lila, and then Krishna suddenly disappears, as we know. 
and he does so for many reasons. As we know, I won't go there now, but we could say that one of them, one of the reasons why he disappears, that not enough complexity had been integrated till that point of the Rasa Lila. On some level, there was integration of complexity, but it's still there was something else to be attained. Therefore, since there was some complexity to be integrated, Krishna was not yet able to derive the fullness of Rasa. Hmm? Uh, it was Rasa Lila, but not Rasa Lila with a long A, as journalists define the Rasa Lila. Hmm? So the fullness of Rasa can only come after perfectly integrated, all that needs to be integrated. All that needs to be embraced in the darkness again. This is happening in the Rasa Lila. So Krishna disappears and goes into the darkness again. So in order to achieve the purpose of relishing Rasa, he should, his Rasaraj, then Krishna creates a further layer of darkness by disappearing, a further layer of perplexity, of uncertainty, by disappearing out of the blue. He's the blue one, Fyamsundar Ganesham. So the blue is disappearing out of the blue. Probably this idea of out of the blue comes originally from this moment, from the Rasa Arena. <laughs> so he disappears. So this first edition of the Rasa Lila, he disappears. So the first edition, as a first edition of a book, can be properly revised, edited, and nourished with further integration of complexity till we get to the final edition and fullest culmination of this divine drama that we know it happens eventually when Krishna returns and the Rasa Lila attains full final consummation. So therefore, just to conclude with this section of on the Rasa Lila and to conclude basically with our today's lecture, it's easy to render lip service to the idea of the Lila from becoming a Brajavasi, following to the footsteps and mood, Raga Nuga. It's easy to speak about that and imagine ourselves to be almost there but we have to act out our beliefs and not only speak about them, as we mentioned many times, hmm? uh, or how much we believe in them. I mean, it's about acting out, embodying, integrating that. So acting out uh, our claims comes here and now in our daily life. Again, there's not other point in which we have to do those things, especially in whatever challenges knock on our door. How do I respond to that? God come in disguise at my life. So like the Brajavasis that we have shared some examples today, we should not use the highest ideal to avoid the present challenges. But we should attain those very ideals through the present challenges. That's a way that we start to participate in Lila wherever we are. I will repeat this idea one more time with or without your permission. We should not use this highest ideal of the Lila and so on to avoid our present challenges as human sadhakas. We should attain those ultimate ideals through the present challenges. We should be able to reach Braj from the here and now to relate to the Lila through the allegorical eye. A new way to participate in Lila here and now. That's the title of today's talk. So anyhow, in this way, we have shared a few examples uh, of how we can participate in Lila here and now. We have begun by sharing the foundation to that, speaking about realism versus idealism, the allegorical like, and then sharing some of these examples. So how we can start to relate to the Lila in connection to our present situation, our present uh, challenges and experiences as sadhakas. And through that, how to begin our participation in it, how to start to begin identifying and feeling part of that in a realistic way, 
develop a sense of belonging to that reality that can nourish and foster our sadhana in the here now. So I hope that that helped. So we'll conclude our lecture here today. A brief homework for you to do, if you want, for all of us. I include myself in it, of course. So let's try to apply today's teachings, what we have shared today, to our particular situation, trying to make not only the lila, but our whole practice more relevant and relatable, which has been basically the whole purpose of this whole series of radical personalism, how to keep Gaudiya Vaishnavism relevant and relatable for us wherever we are. And some extra concluding homework, if you want, since we are concluding here our whole series in this last class, will be like, take a time and try, hopefully, if you want, reflect on which changes have come upon you after going through this radical personalism series. If you need to write them down, and even if you want to share them with me by sending a message, of course, I will be glad to to hear about your experiences and to be humbled by whatever you have realized that for sure will nourish my own journey. So you're, that's an extra invitation for ongoing dialogue. So anyhow, that's what we have reached today. This is the conclusion, as I mentioned, uh, of our whole series of radical personalism. It has been a long journey, whole journey. Started almost like half a year ago. Uh, we have been going through 25 classes, so that's that's something. And uh, we have gone through so many topics. I won't recall, recap all of them now, but I mean, lots of topics about how to deal with the present situation, our situation, the situation of the Gaudiya community, and how to deal with the different unconscious things we have maybe there on a collective level or individual level, the willingness to change. So many topics in connection again to vulnerability and empowerment, individuation, non-dual thinking, issues and tissues between guru and disciple, guru tattva, divine ignorance, dealing with darkness, certain uncertainty and prayer, and now all these topics in relation to how to unearth heaven and properly honor matter. So anyhow, some things that I wanted to share, and of course, it's not everything. As you may know, I'm writing a book based on what we have shared here, but also there are many things that I've not had the time to share in this series that will be included in the book. So you are invited to to get it. I will, of course, publish it approximately if everything is okay in, in, in a month, a little bit more or so. So I will be doing a book launch and a lecture. So I will be announcing, you will be notified whenever the book is ready and published. And yes, there will be a, a few things that won't be included, a good number of them here. And also, in fact, uh, I'm already thinking about it because the book will be a manifesto, as you may know, the name of the book is called Radical Personalism, a revival manifesto for proactive devotion. So the main part of the book will be a manifesto with different points about how we can invoke necessary change in the Gaudiya community started by ourselves. Uh, many of the points of that manifesto I've, I've been touched on some level, but not as with all the depth and time I would like. So I'm rather thinking about not only publishing the book, but also in conjunction with that, uh, two more things at least, and a few more, <laughs> opening a Facebook group that I will, again, of course, eventually announce uh, to continue discussing some of these topics in, in group, in intimacy, so we can invoke the proper reform uh, in a healthy way, ongoing healthy discussion and healing 
in our Gaudiya tradition. But also I'm thinking about starting a podcast series, so a series of conversations with different Gaudiya Vaishnavas, or in some cases even non-Gaudiya necessary, but progressive mature thinkers, saragrahis, essential seekers, essence seekers, practitioners, uh, on touching on the different points, points of the manifesto. So probably this series of podcasts, Radical Personalism Podcast or whatever name it may have, probably that will start uh, when when the book is published, I will say, like a con in conjunction with that, along with this Facebook book group that will be inaugurating. So you will be duly notified online of all this. And of course, I look forward to your participation of that, to your contribution to this cause, because this is not my cause, my movement, my ideal, but in, in this we are all together trying to make Gaudiya Vaishnavism more relevant, relatable to us, to the world, and continue invoking the necessary unfolding of this ever-evolving, beautiful tradition. Uh, and also I will be, of course, uh, starting a, a tour uh, from, I mean, in two weeks approximately, I will start again a, a world tour here in South America, US, Europe, and so on, India, and so on. And mostly I will be speaking on radical personalism, on the book. I will be promoting the book. I'm promoting, I mean, trying to continue extending the reflection and discussion on these topics. So there will be, all those classes will be recorded and streamed, hopefully. So that will be another way of continuing ruminating of what radical personalism entails. So see you there in, in those different points of meeting, converging points, or hopefully personal in some of the points of the tour. And again, to all each and each one of you, deep gratitude for your support, your affection, your constructive criticism, your differences of opinion as well, your participation, your commitment with Gaudi Vaishnavism, with radical personalism, which is, of course, synonymous with this emerging Gaudi Vaishnavism. Uh, and thank you for accompanying me in this journey and for accompanying each other on this journey of radical personalism. Sri Gaudi Sampradaya Ki Jai, Sriman Mahaprabhu Ki Jai, Shri Harinam Sankirtan ki jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrind ki jai, Gaur Pramananda Hari Hari Bhur, Mancha Kalpataru Vyastha Kripasandu Pyaibacha, Patitanam Pavanipyo Vaishnavibhya Namonama, Anant Koti Vaishnavrind ki jai, Gaur Hari Bhur.